How are we doing, guys? Okay, are we ready? Oh, it's good to see you. It's funny how you guys all sat down right exactly where you were last March. Man, if there was ever a time to pick a new seat, it would have been by taking a year off. But mm-mm, not church folk. Church folk are going to sit right where they feel comfortable. Y'all, the chair next to you doesn't have the cooties. I'm just saying. You're not going to catch your death if you sit one row over. But anyway, some things never change. Some things never change. So good to see you. A little differently configured stage today. We've, we managed to get a carpet back on the stage, which Trey had successfully banished from ANC land for about 300 years. Y'all remember we had carpets at Bailey? Yeah, and they turned out to be like the greatest depository of dubious DNA in the south suburbs. Like, they were so dirty. Anyway, it's good to be back, sitting in a chair. Happy Father's Day, all. Looking at you. It's not super easy to tell who is a father, and so we'll make a few mistakes and ask you. But happy Father's Day to all of you. I thought I would join many of you who are at home watching us um, in your favorite chair. I'm not wearing my pajamas, but they're my favorite pants, so we're close. It's my favorite chair this week. It matches my jewelry, so I think that's special. It probably doesn't when those guys are done with the lights, because prob- they'll probably make me look, you know, Don's age or something like that. You can pick which Don. They're both super old. I'm just saying. I'm taking one to DR, so you don't, Brimberry, don't be too old, bro. Don't you be having no aspiration to, don't choke on a pretzel while we're in DR, bro, because I'm not doing mouth-to-mouth, Tara. I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> Oh, it's fun to be here. It feels right, Father's Day, to take it sitting down. This, of course, being a day where lots of heavy and complex things hover. Just take a deep breath. These are, these are tough days, these Mother's Days and Father's Days. Strange things hover just over our heads in the air. I mean, it's not that it's not great to be celebrated. My kids, we go to soccer bars and drink beer and have lots of fun. We, I love that part of it. That's not the part... That part's amazing. Being a dad is amazing, right? But that's not the only reality. There's more than just celebration and appreciation coursing in the veins of days like this. And that's not just true for me. That's also true for you, and I know that. There's some regret, and there's some sadness. There's some wasted time. There's some time that's gone now. All of those things are triggers. There's triggers aplenty at every turn on Father's Day. I've had three dads, if you include my bio dad, my stepdad, and my father-in-law. None of them listening. One of them is with Jesus. The other two, hopefully not listening. I've had three, and yet somehow it feels to me often like I haven't had a single one yet. If unconditional support, it's, there, there may need to be some tissues within arm's reach. This is, we're Methodist enough to cry here. If unconditional support, some of you don't get that joke, all I can tell is when we moved into this building, we threw away no less than 700 boxes of tissue. Right, Trey? Am I right? They were everywhere. That's your fault, Chuck, I'm sure, in some way. It can feel on on an average day like I ended up with no actual father. If unconditional support and protection and encouragement and all that stuff, you know, was supposed to be part of the package, I think the package just never came to my address. It's as if it was misdelivered in some way. And I don't name that to be a spectacle today. I name that because that is probably in some way true for some of you as well. So in the naming of that, it normalizes that experience, and you get to know that you're not the only one navigating this sadness. Sometimes I tell myself not to waste time dwelling on all the losses, but alas, I'm an Enneagram 4. I'm a self-preserving Enneagram 4 at that, and so I know how to hover down in the mud and stay there. Y'all, I can set records holding my breath in the muck and the mire 
of life's losses. I know how to camp there. I can make sadness, if I'm not careful, and my family knows this, I can make it the epicenter of my identity. It only takes decades to outgrow that, so I'm working on that. But, but who has time to lose on days like this? Because I have five daughters of my own who I have to figure out somehow how to support and nurture. I can't see you, Benton, because of this darn music stand. I wish it was moved. Look, he's going to move the music stand. He's, he's just like his pops. Thank you. I want to look at your face today, bro. With a face like that, who wouldn't want to, right? Oh, there's no time to lose. It's all too important. Kids of my own, gathered around my own table. So that's the pull, right? Dads, it's the pull. It's this interesting tension between our own little guy inside that still needs to be parented. And the not-so-little faces of those who gather in our home who definitely also need their own parenting. You see, you and I are like. We're stuck in this tension, aren't we? We share this struggle. It's both and. It's the same time. It happens simultaneously. And like you, I worry I'm not getting it right. I do. I worry I'm stuck repeating the injuries that I received, and I know you do too. And the fear of getting it wrong, of course, is among the most paralyzing forces in all of nature. And this paralysis is by far most acute for me when discussing the arena of my parenting. It's just true. I'm not describing fear, ladies, friends. I'm describing terror. This is the terror that shapes this reality of being a dad. Being a good dad is hard enough, and then you factor in the realities of trying to do this as a pastor, which is kind of like trying to change your swimsuit at the beach with no towel. Everyone's always watching. Some of you caught that quick. So, so doing this as a dad is hard enough, but then doing this as a pastor adds its own complexities, right? Because everything shows up in a community like ours. Everything. It's all here. It's all in the room. Pain and loss and disappointment and injury and regret and all of that stuff. But there's also victory and there's support and there's unconditional love and there's unbelievable stories of dads who nailed it and they do it every single time. It's all in the room. We've got wisdom and breakthroughs and we've got injury and pain and abuse. We've got it all here, which is why it feels sometimes overwhelming how to offer any words whatsoever into space like this. Everything shows up, which is why I tried really hard to get a guest speaker today. <laughs> I tried so hard. I pursued three people, all of them women. I thought it'd be super fun to stand on Mother's Day. Y'all remember Stan a month ago and then, you know, a lady on Father's Day. I just thought, weird, plus it'd be awesome and then I don't have to do it, but at last it was not to be. So today I bring you in no particular order in no particular thematic organization. I won't use the lectionary. I'm not going to use the Bible today. Don't panic. I nearly always do. I, we can talk Bible all you want. I'm not going there today. I don't offer you a list of comprehensive, exhaustive, systematic reflections on the subject matter at hand, that of being a father. You won't hear last words or best hacks or new secrets or tips or fresh insights or a complete set of experiences. What I bring you today is just my soul and some words that sustain me. Truthful words, deep, wise, pliable, healing words. Not biblical words in this case, that's fine. We could do that, of course. We could go there. The Bible's full of wisdom. We nearly always do. There's plenty to drop on. We'll get back to that soon enough. Don't panic. But if I'm retraining myself, which I am, and by extension, you, which I think we are as a faith community, to trust and affirm wisdom wherever it can be found, no matter where we have to go to find it, then we can just as easily turn to poetry today 
as the Bible, to be inspired and to summon something new in us, to remind us of some things that possibly we already knew deep down inside, to reacquaint us with who we most truly actually are. Besides, poetry for me has always been a life-saving technology. It was, I was the wordsmith, I was the songwriter, I was the Shakespeare aficionado traipsing off to college Shakespeare classes with the neighbor. I had the love of pre-Columbian Nahuatl poetry and prophecy, and I grew up in the shadow of men who thought that airtight theological systems were the only things of interest. I grew up in proximity to cold and predictable math equations in chemistry, formulas that produced specific repeatable results with specific anatomic mass, and none of it ever interested me. It never worked on me. It didn't hold my attention. None of it compelled me or anchored me or even inspired me, but beautiful, descriptive, wise words that connected and integrated cultures and language and emotion and experience, that's what kept me alive. That's what kept me engaged. Now that I think of it, poetry was always felt something like it was subversive for me. It felt rebellious. It was exhilarating, and actually, it was just out of reach of the men in my life, and so they couldn't critique it. They didn't read it. They couldn't understand it. They weren't moved, and it was just mine, and so I held it dear. It was about beauty and joy and all those things, but it was also always somehow about survival for me. The men weren't into feelings or emotions in the nurturing landscape of my youth. Some of us shared that American wound. Poetry was for women. At least that was the idea that I picked up somewhere along the way. I don't fault anyone in particular. You see, formulas can be trusted. Emotions cannot. Those change. Men don't. John Wayne said so. <laughs> but I was ever the subversive. I was mostly alone, ever the rebel, never, if I'm honest, very compliant, the sorts of, those sorts of things. So over the years, I've learned to gather men, and I've learned to read them poetry I've learned to read it over them. It loosens us up. It somehow softens the soil of our hearts. You guys know this. It's built into every service we do now, if you haven't noticed. This kind of beauty, this kind of truth and wisdom comes in under our radar. It comes in through the basement window, if you will. It hits us from our blind side as men. It's hard to do that now, Don, with biblical stories. We've heard them all. You have to bring super, super new stuff to get a Bible story in the front door and really catch someone's attention. Somehow poetry sneaks in the back way, and it moves us, and it melts us. So I learned to do this under the tutelage of our, our good friend, who you just saw, Mark Williams. Mark and I have been working on ways to build poetry into worship for many years now, actually, for probably three, maybe three and a half. You heard him today. I've done something like this specifically with a retreat I lead for foster and adoptive dads in October, the first couple weeks of October. I do it every year, and I open every time, every session, uh, the beginning of every day, reading some poetry. We do, we do Rumi and we do Williams and we rejoice in Stafford and Rilke. Oh, do we read Rilke? Oh, y'all just have to know about Rilke. Rilke is a German mystic poet that means so much to our family that we inscribe Rilke's words on the inside of our old turquoise rings. I love the image of big, burly, adoptive foster dads from all over America calling home after they drift back over the mountains where we gather at a totally secluded place called Bear Trap Ranch to hold space for one another's journeys for three days in October. 
I love the image of their iPhones lighting up as they come down the front side of that mountain with messages from home, with the faces of their husbands or their wives lighting up as they respond to the question, what have y'all been doing? (laughs) I imagine the beautiful surprise when they say tearfully, well, it starts off with poetry. We've been reading poetry. We've been weeping together under the words of Rumi and Stafford and Chemenis and Yeats and William. Listen to me, friends. I might only slide forward. I might share once today. It's high time we deconstruct antiquated ideas about gender. Hear me close. About men, about women, about what they crave and what they don't. Gender is a largely limiting social construct that we need to begin to grow beyond now. And you know this already. What do I mean? There is no gender to vulnerability, to emotions, or the capacity to nurture and develop, or to weep together as a way of expressing supreme strength and resilience. This is not something that just the women folk do. Just like there is no gender to physical strength, or initiative, or logic, or authority, or toughness, this is not reserved for the men folk only. I wonder if anyone in the room is tracking with me this morning. So let's grow up and put away these oversimplifications. We've outgrown them. Human beings are way more dynamic than old constructs of language and culture. Every virtue and strength is available to all human beings. Is there half an amen in this room? Not even half. There's one. There you go. Come on, y'all. You got to play the, you got to work with me here. If we're going to have people in the room, we've got to have some energy transfer. Y'all take, inhale. Some of you are blue. You can't hold your breath this long. Every virtue and strength is available to all, which makes addressing just men on just days like Father's Day increasingly more awkward for me, if I'm honest. I've proved this over the last six years with hundreds of dads who gather with me in Colorado to heal. We do it at least in part with poetry and tears shared together. There's pipes and cigars and fly rods and single malt whiskey and board games and craft beer, but there's also poetry. So and if, the, if this event that I'm describing happens to catch your fancy, if it's something that uh, is pounding in your chest and you're interested in this, join me and the team that I've put together, Mike and Andrew and Curtis and Kimmer and Blasky and Beaver and Pater and Vanderveen. We do this every year. It's the highlight of our fall. It's making us better dads, and you'll see a QR code on your screen right now, and it'll be on our website too if you need it, or just find me if you're interested in joining us. It's an exceptional event. So that's where I bring this habit of reading poetry in worship. I bring you words today, beautiful, eternal, world-shaping words, words connected to some things that I know for sure. I don't know much for sure, y'all, but there's a few things I do know for sure, and a lot of them come from the words we're going to read together. So in no particular order of importance, if you're looking for an analytical sort of architecture to hold this all together, you're going to have to suspend that for a minute. We're in poetry now, so just go with me, hang tight, release the need to understand the three points all alliterated. I'm not that kind of preacher anyway. These are just some lessons that I've learned the hard way over parenting for 24 years. And every one of these ideas has saved my life in one way or the other. They are gospel to me, and I hope they will be to you as well. So let me open with one of my favorites. Try to enjoy these on the screen. You'll have access. You probably got a little book as you came in, and they're beautifully printed there for you to remember. Put that in your work truck or whatever it is y'all drive keep those handy. These words from William Carlos Williams, and I love these words. He writes, if I, when my wife is sleeping and the baby and Kathleen are sleeping, and the sun is a flame white disc in silken mists above shining trees, if I, in my north room, dance naked 
grotesquely before my mirror, waving my shirt round my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely. I was born to be lonely. I am best so. If I admire my arms, my face, my shoulders, flanks, buttocks against the yellow-drawn shades, who shall say I am not the happy genius of my household? Oh, guys, nobody told me this growing up, but self-care matters. It isn't selfish. Retreat and advance, as it turns out, are interdependent. Our soul, hear me, our interior worlds must be sustained and fed and nurtured and cared for by us. Which means no matter what kind of life or marriage you manage to build and maintain, the greatest work of your life will have to be done alone in your north room. Which is just probably a metaphor for whatever place you or I or we retreat to for comfort, for centering, for that needed reset. Now, I don't go there first. I take care of my responsibilities William says the wife, Kathleen, and the baby, they're all tucked away safely. Notice retreat and self-care are not always the first order of business, but I get to go there when I need to. When the house is at rest, when my duties are done, self-compassion, dear ones, needs no defense. I wonder who needs to hear that today. Some of y'all dads need to grab onto this. Take this permission if you need it. There's so much here in this poem by Williams. We could go here for days. We could do whole weeks on this. There's, but there's always been, this is what leaps to me, there's always been an absurd element to what rekindles my flame. My north room has always been strange to the uninvited. That's why you're not invited. <laughs> it's not what others love or crave. It's my north room, Right? It might just look like waving shirts overhead to you, but it restores me. Find what does that for you, Dad. And make no other explanations. Mine's going to smell like gasoline because old motorcycles all leak. It's going to smell like pipe tobacco and coffee and leather. Mine sounds like an 80s synth pop with soaring sax solos over quarter beats. That's what mine sounds like. Yours won't. You get to find, but find it, Dad. Find it and get there often. Williams. Here's one by Rilke. Love this. This one's entitled, Sometimes a Man Stands Up During Dinner. <laughs> he writes, Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east and his children say blessings on him as if he were dead. And another man who remains inside his own house stays there, inside the dishes and in the glasses so that his children have to go far out into the world towards that same church which he forgot. Now you need to be forewarned, one can never totally be quite sure what a German mystic is referring to. 
To be mystic is to be mysterious. To be a German mystic is to be beyond mysterious. <laughs> but I think Rilke is describing the war that rages inside us dads. Do we pursue our muse? Do we find ourselves? Do we follow the winds to our little chapel in the east? Or do we self-erase, doing only as we're told, losing ourselves in the mundane tasks of life and of family? Either way, the silent, unseen pull of this church in the east, which feels like a metaphor for a curiosity about the origin of things or this invisible meaning, right? This invisible, unstoppable pull has a multi-generational impact. Rilke was right about this. The ancient tug to discover our truest, most primal selves cannot go unheeded, gentlemen. At best, it can be deferred or possibly delayed, but it will have to be done. If not, someone will get hurt, our children. So hear me, self-erasure isn't a good example. Now, I know that's not what we were taught. That was a mistake. It's never been true. There will always be sacrifice and a lifetime of selfless acts to empower and nurture our lovers and our broods that we create, but we must live too. We must thrive too. You're too much like your maker, not. Instinctively, you know that this is true, even if you've struggled to articulate this to your loved ones. That chapel in the east that calls your name, that's yours to find. Now, I want to be clear. There is a call of the wild that must be ignored. A reckless, senseless, self-destructive, family-crushing urge that squanders and consumes and destroys and never actually arrives anywhere worth going. That's not what I'm talking about. I believe Rilke is describing self-discovery. That's the deep divine drive, and it never goes away. I say we find ways to do both. I think we find our chapel in the east and we do our dishes too. I think that's what Rilke is talking about. Here goes another. You ready? You guys surviving this? How are you going to talk about this service to your mom? <laughs> I love this one. William Stafford writes, this one's a little longer, but it so captures what it means to be a dad. He writes a piece called With Kit, Age 7 at the Beach. We would climb the highest dune, from there to gaze and come down. The ocean was performing. We contributed our climb. Waves leapfrogged and came straight out of the storm. What should our gaze mean? Kit waited for me to decide. Standing on such a hill, what would you tell your child? That was an absolute vista. Those waves raced far and cold. How far could you swim, Daddy, in such a storm? As far as was needed. And as I talked, I swam. I so love the image here of a dad and a child standing before wild and untamed things, things far greater, far more powerful than themselves. This is real life. We actually are towered over by realities and complexities of existence that are far greater than we are, only the child doesn't always know that, do they? The child sees their father as bigger than, as stronger than, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. 
oh, what beautiful and crushing weight we carry as fathers. Now, hang on, this might get a little tender, and if you're not crying, maybe you should. What father doesn't feel the need to be a hero? What dad doesn't feel the need to conquer, to subdue? What father hasn't looked into the admiring gaze of their little ones and worried that they'd never measure up to such trust, such epic expectation? Maybe bravado and bluster and braggadocio belong in the world that John Wayne begat, but here in the real world, fear, hesitation, calculation, trepidation are the real stuff of fatherhood. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You don't have to be a hero, friend. Hear me, to care, to love, to stay present, emotionally engaged, when, when, when you'd rather flee because of the size of what you're facing, this is its own act of courage. It is its own revolution of presence. To contribute nothing more than a gaze to the, and the promise to try, to keep your head just above the froth and the foam of the unpredictable storms of life, that is still something that only you can do for your kids, for your little ones. Even when they're in their 20s. Like almost half of mine are now. Over half. Almost. Oh, Stafford. Kills me with that one. Let's do another Vilka one. This one's called The Man Watching. I'm actually trying to lay some bricks here today. I, I wonder if you, you could, you're seeing where we're going. Rilke writes, I can tell by the ways the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. And I hear the far-off fields say things I can't bear without a friend, say things I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time, and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with the small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us, I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament when the wrestlers' sinews hung like metal strings. He felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined to fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand and needed, that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. Oh, Rilke, <laughs> can you feel how much his thoughts have shaped my own? When Rilke is done speaking of surrender and release, there's really little else to say. Us dads think we have to make our mark, that we have to slay our dragons, and we're told from day one that we need to fight and scratch and defend to be worthy and loved and respected to make a name for ourselves. That's what we're told. But when the storm, the great shifter of shapes, comes rolling through, real strength knows how to lay down, to not resist, 
and to end up with a legacy that transcends any name that we might contribute to life. You see, we grow by surrendering to things far greater than ourselves. Insert any one of the names of your children there. Dads, learn what not to fight. Learn what not to resist. Let life's storms summon softness and flexibility from your deepest DNA. It's there. It's always been there. But you've got to find it. Jimenez writes in a poem called, I Am Not I. He says, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and whom at other times I forget, who remains calm and silent while I talk and forgives gently when I hate, who walks where I am not, who will remain standing when I die. What legacy will you leave behind when you fade back into the fabric of the cosmos, Dad? What will you leave behind? What will remain standing when you die? Well, it won't be the wealth you collected or the stuff you built. It will be the example that you left to those who are close enough to observe. The example of the work that you did to discover yourself. Such a pursuit will doubtless be to know that you are actually not your experiences. You are not your thoughts. Buddhism 101, right? You are not just the wealth and the things left behind. You are not those things. You are the one walking beside yourself, the eternal one that you manage only sometimes, if you're lucky and tenacious, to visit and to know. What happened to you, Dad? Because you are not synonymous with that. Oh, there's enough there to set you free if you can find it. What calamity did you survive? That's not you. What deficits and losses have you had to endure as best you could happened to you? Because you are different than those things. You are not synonymous with them. You are the one who experienced them. You are the one who rises anyway. That's who you are. And understanding that difference, I think, is where it all begins. Which is why we're not talking about fathers anymore. We're just talking about being good humans, aren't we, moms? We're not leaving you out. <laughs> A couple more. Lindsay writes in one called Rain. This one, for those who love poetry that rhymes. Some of you are like, this, aren't, this ain't darn poetry. None of it rhymes. How many of you all thought that? Come on, be honest. Well, in third grade, all poetry had to rhyme. Well, here's one that rhymes for you in case this is something you need. We're going somewhere. Lindsay writes, Each storm-soaked flower has a beautiful eye, and this is the voice of the stone-cold sky. Only boys keep their cheeks dry. Only boys are afraid to cry. Men thank God for tears, alone with the memory of their dead, alone with lost years. This little gem speaks to the growth, to growth and the dying mythology of masculinity and manhood that, my God, we must bury it in our generation. It speaks to progress and growth. We have to recover. Y'all, we have to recover from the untruths that we were told were absolutely fixed. As it turns out, they weren't fixed, were they? This talks about the death of that mythology. We need to put that away. Only boys think emotion is weakness. 
something to be avoided. Men, on the other hand, Lindsay captures. And of course, that is just to say boys who have been sufficiently weathered, who have been defeated long enough in the same direction by things greater than themselves, to quote a little Rilke, that's what men are. Men, only men know about tears, Lindsay says. Tears irrigate and water and invest and nurture. Pain is still useful. It can be redeemed. Brokenness can yet beget new life. It always does. This final selection from our very own Mark Williams. He's collecting these. He writes one a week for his baby girl. I don't know how old June is now. She's still a tater tot, so she's young. This one's entitled Week 8. Mark writes, The same day we learned your name, they told us what doctors you'd see, and we pictured you at prom if you made it out. And now you have, and we know more and less than we did then, which becomes all there is to say about any girl you love well. But we think you'll love prom. Oh, if you knew the man and the mom, and if you knew this divine little spark of a baby, if you knew them like I do, like my family does, then this one would mean even more if that's possible. What Mark names here is the hope of health and progress and development that we all dream of for our kids. We all do. And when things don't go exactly as planned, when medical situations and diagnoses and setbacks occur, we don't give up. We lean in. We hope harder. We visualize prom. We let prom pull us through the darkness. And when our kids find a way to rise because they will, because they were always going to, we simultaneously know more and we know less about them. And this is what it means to parent, to be a father. Steering and controlling and smoothing out the way for our child, doing our utmost to manhandle and manipulate, manipulate how the world will interact with them, our very own tiny sparks of divine light, attempting to control how the world will nurture and understand their contribution after we are long gone, turns out to be, friends, a far lesser way of loving in the end than just releasing, which feels increasingly like an unknowing. Love is not possession, Mark whispers. Love is knowing and unknowing and hoping and releasing and being surprised and letting prom pull us. <laughs> so they're just words, I will admit. That's what I bring you today on Father's Day. These don't capture all that it means to be a father. How could they? I have merely offered you some of the thoughts that sustain me, nothing more. And I've offered you what feels like the gospel to me. Like you, I've been both the wounded and the wounder. I am both at once. As a father, I have failed in many of the same ways, if not all of the same ways that I was failed. Same is true for you. And yet, I'm here in the game. Trying to reflect and adjust, and stay hungry, trying to do better, trying to nurture the life that God has given me, and that of my kids. I like summaries. They're my favorite. That's what I hunt. Some of you hunt deer. I hunt good summaries of big ideas. I find them every time I can. So what does it mean to be a father? What could be a summary sufficient to carry what that means, to carry the freight of being a dad? Well, after trying a dozen other alternatives for 
24 years. Here's what I think it boils down to. To father is to water seeds with tears. That's all it is. Now notice, defining it this way doesn't leave anyone out. It leaves no one out. You don't have to be a traditional dad to do this well. You don't have to have kids of your own to do this well. This isn't even a male-specific metaphor, notice. This might actually be a metaphor broad enough for all of us, which, of course, is the hallmark of a good metaphor. It's universal. This wisdom is not just for dads. We're really talking about being more human today. What does it mean to be alive? It means to water seeds with tears. Potential, eternal entrusted things with the fruit of our own breaking, with the fertile ashes of our own unfolding. That's what it means. This may not be your favorite view of manhood. I only bring you what's saving my soul right now. Tears are the new strength. Vulnerability is the new playbook. And self-care, which always leads to community rebuilding, is the new revolution. This final thought. Dads, I know sometimes when we get to the end of these hard conversations like this one or any other confrontation about how you're showing up as a dad or as a husband, I know we often feel defeated. We feel paralyzed. We feel stuck. I feel the same. So take a moment right now and pull deep inside yourself. You'll know you're doing it by the pattern of your breath. Pull deep inside, fathers, and I'm asking you actually to, ex to inhale and to exhale a little extra that you've been holding right down there at the bottom. Just let it go. And allow me to remind you today that you actually have the resources necessary to comfort and to nurture and to parent your own damn self right now. This is Texas. We can say that. That offends Utah, I'm told. Pull into yourself right now, and let's just sit here for a second. We need movement at the tectonic level of what makes us show up in the world. These aren't just a change of ideas. I'm asking you to consider the fact that it's very possible that you can parent your own damn self right now in the ways that you have come up wanting, and you've come up with less than what you needed. Every resource is needed. It's already inside you. So sit with this truth as you are able, only if you are able if you have the capacity and the willingness to experience it right now, sit with that. If not, let's come back to this at some point when you're ready, and that's okay. The feelings of defeat and shame around how we parent feel like they're going to overtake us. But if you let them flow through you, they won't destroy you. You will be well. You are okay. You will yet rise, I promise. You are always going to. Don't medicate the shame of our mistakes. Don't hide. Don't numb. Sit tight. The wind will blow. Oh, the storms will beat the weather. They'll beat the sashes and panes of the windows of your house. You'll think it's all coming down. And that storm, that great shifter of shapes, is designed to soften and mold you so that these things can flow through. We cannot hide men from the shame that we bear. We can only presence it. And now we get to remember together that nothing is ever too late. There's no such thing as too far gone. It's a senseless 
sentence. It's never been true, y'all. If anything died a criminal's death in public on a cross all those years ago, hear me, it was the mythology that anything or anyone is beyond recovery, is beyond repair, is beyond redemption. They aren't. They never were. Period. Mic drop. Can't drop a mic on my shoulder. This whole cosmos, you guys, is made up entirely of restarts. That's what makes this place this place. That's what makes you you. And things can be made new in an instant. It's cooked into the soup at every level. Chase it with your telescope or chase it with your microscope or sit in the mirror and look at your naked body and realize it's all a series of invitations to begin again. Now I'm hissing like the sheriff of Nottingham. Sound like Ted Cruz. That's how you know I'm preaching too hard. So today is no different. Some of you got to go back and watch some footage. Yeah. All things can be made new in an instant. Today is no different. Your life is no different. You say, you don't know what I've done. I don't care, brother. I don't care. You are no different. You are not somehow for some bizarre reason left out of this reality. You get to restart again with the rest of us. The only question left for us is this. What would you like to make with the rest of this day? Given what you now know about life and love and longing and living and legacy, what would you like to create with what's left over? Oh, there's plenty of time. There's always plenty more to work with. Every day is a new start. Will you take hold of that? I pray you will. Because you deserve it. And so do I.